Have you ever had uh, a problem with somebody? Have you ever had? <laughs> I guess you wouldn't be human if you didn't. Have you ever had a problem that you felt could not be resolved and you didn't know what to do? Well, this morning I want to share with you how do we as Christians handle the problems with other folks? How are we handling our interpersonal relationships? What do we do? Is there any help coming from the Bible as to how to handle things? And I want to assure you this morning, the Bible's got a process by which we can help resolve problems and issues, not just in our life, but in our church when issues come up. So I'd like to share two stories with you. First, one at the beginning, and then it will go to the end. When we get to the end of the sermon, another story. And uh, this one is entitled Cross the Divide. And it's a pastor who's writing this. And he said, one of the most moving scenes I've ever witnessed occurred in Potterdown, Northern Ireland, two nights before the Orange Men were to march through the Catholic neighborhood taunting the people who lived there. A peace rally was held in the town hall, and I had been invited to participate. The place was a beat-up old building, and the windows one side were of, uh, on one side were covered over with plywood because the glass had been shattered by bombs. Inside the hall, about 100 people gathered, fairly evenly divided between Catholics and Protestants. During the hour that followed, people from each side of the religious divide begged forgiveness from one another. A Catholic man would tell of his wrong attitudes and confess to some mean and evil things he had done to Protestants in years past. The Protestants would call back to him saying, we forgive you. The Protestant man would then confess to horrendous things that they had done against Catholics. And this time the Catholics would respond by saying, we forgive you. It went on and on like that until I was reduced to tears. The contrition humility, and the prayers for forgiveness of that night were unparalleled in my experience. What a beautiful word is forgiveness. Amen. Have you ever asked the Lord to forgive you? One of the things we need to be forgiven for is our attitude towards people and the negative emotions and the negative feelings and the negative thoughts that we carry with us. Here's something that can be a lifelong lesson in one sentence. No matter how long you nurse a grudge, it won't get better. No matter how long you nurse a grudge, it won't get better. You need something else. You need forgiveness, and you need to forgive. We see conflict and attempts at conflict resolution in almost every segment of interpersonal relations. This week, in Washington, D.C., in the House of Representatives, we, we saw exactly how not to resolve our differences. Not a very good, not a very good showing in the house of elected people who are supposed to represent us. Consequently, because of how that went on, there are angry, bitter feelings and wild accusations flying everywhere. And we shouldn't be surprised about that because sooner or later, every institution will be faced with some sort of bump in the road that disturbs the peace. We don't measure people by their problems. We measure them and institutions by how they handle their problems. Everybody here has a problem. We all have our problems. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Let it run roughshod over us? Let it overwhelm us? 
Let it intimidate us, shut us down, give us agita, or that's the Italian version, or tourists, which is the Yiddish expression, for just be, being upset and just you can't deal with it. There's a better way. There are plenty of voices ready to give you advice on how to handle these things. In his book, Rapid Relief from Emotional Distress, psychiatrist Gary Emery writes, you may think you're better off telling somebody off, but you're wrong. Research has found the opposite to be the case. Freely venting your anger corrodes relationships and breeds more anger, not less. So when we want to try to resolve somebody, we don't go to them with an angry exp expression, angry feelings, an angry mi uh, mindset. We go to them in an effort to resolve things, and I'm gonna share the implications behind that. Jesus teaches us how to resolve conflict between individuals instead of adding to the situation that could be sensitive, how to resolve it. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, and let's stand for the reading of a few words which are the process to Jesus given us for conflict resolution. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass, if he got something against you, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. He shall hear, if he shall hear you, thou hast gained a brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Sounds pretty harsh at the end there, but let's talk about it. You may be seated. There are four steps involved in this process, but each one of those steps involve talking, not burying, talking, not putting off, not running away, facing things, it's best to face our problems than run from our problems. Amen, somebody? You run away from your problems, I'm going to tell you, there are some problems you can't outrun. They're going to tag after you like a dog with rabies. And sooner or later, you're going to get bit. So three steps that Jesus says, and they involve talk and prayer. He says, first of all, meet with the person. There's no substitute for a personal contact and conversation, private conversation. You go to somebody who, with whom you have a, a, a grievance or who has a grievance with you, and you try to establish a connection. You, you try to talk things through. Jesus says, go and tell. In other words, you go in an effort to understand and then be understood. This is about communicating. This is about trying to resolve something, not make it worse. Reconciliation is a big word among Christians. And in order to achieve that level of understanding, you must be a listener. You don't even have to be a great listener. You just have to learn the difference between opening your yap and shutting up. That's putting in psychological terms. You must listen and learn the other person's point of view. You must understand them emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. That's what you're going there. Some people are just, seem to be so, just so angry, but the reality is they may be so hurt. It comes across as anger because that's the only emotion, emotion that's free for them to deal with. 
That's the only place they've ever dealt with their problems in the past. And so anger is how they lead. Be careful. Talk to this person privately. Make a deal with them that they're not going to spread your conversation to anybody else. And go there to try to reconcile with that person, not vent your spleen. And when you have an opportunity to share with that person and they willingly accept, you pray and you reconcile and you tell that person that you forgive them and they tell you that they forgive you and you move on. Some people say, I can forgive, but I can't forget. Well, then they really haven't ever forgotten. I'm forgiven. Because sooner or later, something is going to happen to let them release that. So pray. Secondly, if that fails, if you go and it fails, what do you do next? You keep talking. You go back another time. This time, bring somebody with you. In the past, when we have had issues among individuals in the church, uh, I and the deacons would go to an individual and try to work things out with them and talk to person number one and pray with person number one and then go to person number two and try to get them to talk about the issue. It's worked every single time. I can maybe think maybe one time when it wasn't as great as it could have been. But for the most part, we were able to work things out. So bring somebody with you who, is, who you know is mature, who you know is not going to be one-sided. If that doesn't work, that doesn't bring about a peaceful re resolution with repentance and reconciliation, you go to the church. What does that mean? Over the years, I've given you my cell phone number. You call me up and you say, Pastor, I've got a problem. I need your help. I will help. I will pray. I will go. I'll go to wherever you are, to wherever you need me. And let me give you one more thing that I won't do. I won't talk behind your back about what we've discussed. I believe the most important part of a ministry in, in, in counseling is to keep, keep confidence. So you can rest assured whatever you tell me is between you and me. Unless you say to me, Pastor, I want you to send before the congregation next week and blab everything we talked about. Bless you. I think that's an amen. But I won't, I won't, I won't violate your confidence. So go to the church. And you are part of Amwell when you ask me to, to be your leader and as, as a mediator. And if all of that fails, then you and I and this other individual, resolution number four, verse 17 says, if that brother is still unmoving, that we are to separate in fellowship. In other words, we've talked and talked and talked. You've called upon the church to help out. We've gone and spoken to this person. We've maybe brought the person before the circle of servants. But we've talked about it to the point where any reasonable person would want to reconcile. And if that doesn't happen, then the reality is we have to separate temporarily and maybe permanently. That, that idea of separating, which Jesus mentioned, is found, first of all, in Deuteronomy 19.19, where it says that a little separation would be a good thing to cool things down. And so Jesus mentions it as part of his process. If it's not an act of revenge, but a concern that the unrepentant individual is likely to repeat the behavior that initiated the conflict in the first place. In other words, giving time for everybody to cool down, 
giving time for people to think things through, giving time for people to pray, giving time for people to talk again and try to work things out. The idea is always to try to work things out, amen? Not to bury them. You know, this is not a, do a, a dog bone that you want to go and bury in the backyard and watch the dog dig it up again. That happens sometimes. It's not good. So, so Romans 12, 18, look at this verse. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Well, if it's possible. Some people make it impossible, right? And people, some people make it impossible to live peaceably with them. And when that happens, Romans 12, 18, is one of the verses that allows us to decide to separate for a while. To give everybody time to cool down and think things through. When issues arise in the church, Jesus' process for conflict resolution is highly applicable, and it's a pathway to resolving problems in the church. It's almost identical to how we should handle things, and how is that? Out in the open, not buried, not people wondering what's going on, but be visible, be, be transparent, and be open and honest. Some people get surprised when there are problems in the church. Why should you? Is there a perfect church? Now be careful how you answer this next one. <laughs> you know where it's going, right? Is there a perfect pastor? <laughs> no, of course not. And when you have all this imperfection going on, we're not a perfect congregation, we're not a perfect church, we're not perfect people, we're gonna do things that imperfect people do. We're going to screw up every so often. We're going to make a mess of things every so often. And then all of us need to be in an attitude of love and caring and wanting to reconcile and get things accomplished together. Churches can have disputes over material things, like the color of the pew cushions. We didn't have that when we put the pew cushions. By the way, if you had been here about 10, 15 years ago, you'd be sitting on beautiful oak benches with no cushions. And you'd be saying, when are they ever going to get cushions? Well, eventually we got them. But I don't think anybody argued over the color. But I've heard of churches where they argue over, the, over the, cushion, the color of the cushions and the color of the rug and the color of the walls. Those are the things some people get really worked up over. I would not be a good pastor of a church like that. <laughs> I'd have a problem. Churches can have disputes over material things, and we can over ha also have conflict over doctrinal teaching. And other things that are being taught from God's word can become a problem. For example, how should we baptize? You know, there's no consensus on how to baptize. We believe the Bible says that, and there's plenty of scripture to support it, that you go into the waters of baptism, emblematic, symbolic, illustrative of what Jesus did when he was crucified, buried in the grave for three days and rose again. That's why you get baptized, get baptized three times. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit says. Well, some people say you do that forward. And that's what we do here. And some people say you do it backward. They do that elsewhere. I remember when I was district moderator. That's the, that's the highest elected person in all of the churches in this uh, the Church of the Brethren district. That, at that time, there was about 76 churches. So I was moderator for a year. 
And one of the things I wanted to do at our district conference when all the churches sent delegates, I wanted to get snippets from what different churches did. Because at that time, I was encouraging and we were watching churches from the Spanish community come in, uh, churches from Chinese community come in, churches from, uh, from uh, Middle East come in, former Muslims. And I remember the Brooklyn church where I, Gene and I attended before he came out to New Jersey. They, had a, they started getting a number of, of former Muslims and they had a young Muslim boy who got saved in that church and he wanted to be baptized. Well, first of all, when his parents heard that he converted to Jesus Christ, they put out a death threat on him. And when they heard that he was gonna be baptized, they went ballistic and they threatened. And so the police, New York City police, that's two or three cars were outside of the church during the baptism. And it was such a, such a thrilling experience to see this boy getting baptized and to hear the amens and people being excited about it. And when, when the district conference came, which was many, many months after that happened, I asked if, we, if they had any video or anything, and they did. They had a video of this boy getting baptized, and he came to the district meeting. He shared his story, and then the video rolled. Now again, the brethren baptized forward. Well, the, the pastor there was from Palestine, and they, bat back, they baptized backwards. And you should have heard the sounds. Oh, no. I said, you guys are lucky I don't come down there. <laughs> After all this kid's been through, to see him being baptized, and instead of going forward, he went backward, and for you, this is like the end of the world? Excuse me. But people can disagree about that. And people can disagree about Bible translations. We use the King James Version. There's these, thou's, ye's, and so forth. People say, well, that's kind of hard to understand. Well, so is physics. <laughs> but you have to have a teacher. And the teacher will work you through these things. And we work you through, try to understand what you're reading there. And salvation by grace through Christ alone is what we believe as Bible believers. We don't think you have to go through any motions in other words, you can't be perfect, your good deeds can't outweigh your bad deeds, that you have to do certain things in order to be saved. We say this is what the Bible teaches. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, not by anything you do, that you'd be saved. That's what we teach. That's what we believe. That's what the Bible says. And so you don't find yourself in a church where, you know, you have to be good and you have to do this, and you have to do the other thing to be saved. Well, there are differences. This is where we stand. Here's a question. In the first century, was there ever a dispute over doctrine among church leaders? In other words, when the, first, when the church was first founded, were there differences of opinion that led to problems? And the answer is, what do you think? Anybody vote no? I'll give you verses. Yes. Acts 15, between leaders of the church at Antioch and Paul and Barnabas. The issue was resolved by going before church leaders. The people from Antioch believed just what I said, that in order for, for people to be saved, they had to follow Jewish law. They had to be circumcised. They had to go through all of that business. And, and Paul and Barnabas saw what it says in Ephesians, that grace is what saves somebody putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior is how you get saved. 
when you put your faith and trust in him. Well, if, well that was brought before the council of Jerusalem, which was the, which was the gathering place for church leaders. And so this issue was brought before the church leaders. One side made a presentation, the other side made a presentation. They brought their, they brought their evidence for what they, what they believed. And Paul and Barnabas won out. I don't mean it to sound like a contest, but it became, it became how the church functioned in the first century and what eventually got into the book. And there was another one in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Paul, Peter, is rebuked by, by Paul for hypocrisy and false doctrine. In other words, Peter was doing the wrong thing. And Paul went and confronted him. What was the wrong thing? Peter, Peter also agreed that you didn't need to do anything to be saved. But then he'd go to Jewish enclaves and he, he would talk about keeping kosher and he wouldn't go and eat anything that was not clean according to the scripture. In other words, he was going, he was acting out the law and he wasn't speaking the law. So he was saying one thing and doing one thing that was different. What do you call that? hypocrisy and so Paul got to Peter and the Bible says he came right into his face and he said you can't do that that's hypocrisy and you're being hypocritical when you tell them that's great salvation by grace and then you tell them that they got to do something in order to be saved you're killing them and so Peter acquiesced he came before the church and they and they shared that and he never did that again so they resolved their conflict in an amicable way face to face Talking, 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 not running away, not making believe the issue didn't exist. So when, when we have conflict in the church, as they had conflict, they went to Jesus' process. When I research a Bible study or a sermon, my con common companions are two things. This book and something called a concordance. Does anybody know what a concordance is? If you know what a concordance is, would you raise your hand? Okay. A concordance for those who didn't raise your hand. It's a big book. Now, you can get it online nowadays, and there's a concordance you can get on your smartphone. I ain't that smart. I have a book about this thick. In fact, there's one back there in the library you can look at. It's about that wide, contains thousands of pages, and in that concordance, every single word that's said in the Bible, there's, for example, you look up love, you see the verse where the first time it was ever occurred, it gives you that reference. The first time love occurred in the Bible is, and it fills it in. And then the last time, and everything in between. So if you want to study love from a biblical point of view, and this is how I do it. Pastor, how do you do your sermons? This is how I do it. I check the words from the beginning to the end and in the middle. Because that'll help me understand what the scripture is saying about the word love or any other word, and that's how I go through, especially places where it's not quite clear, then I gotta do a lot more research. Word by word, verse by verse, comparing, making connections, connecting the dots. In research, one must be aware of something called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias, it's up there on the screen. And what it basically means is, you have something already in your mind. You find confirming evidence for what you already believe and you ignore the evidence which contradicts what you already believe. So you're only looking to pad the results. 
because this is what you believe, and now you go looking for all the verses that, that lead you to that, and you disregard all the ones that seem to not say that. This is called confirmation bias, and you have to be very careful when you study to keep that mind open and be in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to lead you so that you understand correctly what he's saying. As you study the Bible, you'll find out that most verses mean just what they appear to mean when you read them. Their meaning is clear. But then there are those verses whose meaning is not clear. Those verses require a deeper dive into the Bible, word by word, verse by verse, study to reveal their, their true meaning. Clear? Am I confusing anybody? I hope not. By way of example, let's examine four words that have eluded agreement, consensus, among Bible scholars and Bible teachers and pastors. Enlisting the qualities for candidates being considered for pastor and deacons, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, verse 12, a phrase, husband of one wife. Look at that. That verse seems unclear to some because and because it seems to be unclear to some, it's subject to interpretation. So what does that mean? People will look at that verse and they'll say, well, I see what it says, but here's what I say it means. Okay? The 1599 Geneva Bible, that's older than the, than the King James. The 1599 Geneva Bible, in its commentary on that verse, says that deacons can't have more than one wife at a time. Anybody see anything else there, there, up there? Husband of one wife? Can't have more than one wife? So it's either bigamy or polygamy. Bigamy means you have one. Polygamy means you have many. If you have more than one, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you, you I don't know what kind of a man you are, <laughs> but you've got to have something going on that's different. I don't know. Study of Paul's writing uh, forbids both polygamy and bigamy for all believers. 1 Corinthians 7.2, look at this verse. Let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. One on one. Do you see that? Does everybody see that? One husband, one wife, one wife, one husband. Not dual. Some have a different understanding, which is that the individual can't qualify for office of deacon or pastor if they've been divorced and remarried. But a study of scripture reveals that while God hates divorce, he has made allowance for divorce. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 8 and 9, divorce is allowed if there is infidelity, adultery, God would have the couple work through that problem. He's not, he's not espousing that you should be divorced. He's saying that if it's irresolvable, you may. That's the reason the covenant relationship has been broken. You made a promise and you broke it. And you won't even repent of it. The Hebrew Greek study Bible notes, quote, in the case of a widower, Paul writes in Romans 7, 1 to 3, that there is no restriction upon a widower to remarry. Now, that just makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Your, your spouse dies, and you remarry. Nobody would have a problem with that. Do you see that? In the case of divorce, 
neither the Lord Jesus nor the Apostle Paul placed such a restriction on a divorced person who was, here it is now, ready, the innocent party in the unfortunate and God-hated divorce process. In other words, if your spouse divorces you and you've tried for it not to happen, God says you can remarry. And then we'll look back over your life in this new marriage and see how you're doing. Noted scholar, whom you may know, <clears throat> Pastor John MacArthur writes, the husband of one wife, quote, the husband of one wife, literally in the Greek is a one woman man. This is to say, this is to say nothing about marriage. This says nothing about marriage or divorce. The issue is not the deacon's marital status, but his moral and sexual purity. Now, when you look at that husband of one wife, how many of you see the word divorce? Anybody see the word divorce? Can I tell you that in, in speaking to people over the years, I've had people say to me, Pastor, you're wrong. Don't you see the word divorce? And I'm saying, no, I don't. Look, there's the D word. Where? I don't know. I only know, the, when you take it straight on, that's what it says. You can't be a polygamist, you can't be a bigamist. And it says, when you look back over your life, having been divorced, how have you lived it? How are your children? What do you see when you look at them? Do you see, do you see God at work in their lives? Those who, there are those who believe that God, while God will forgive a divorced person, he will never use that person for spiritual leadership. Have you heard that? That yes, God can forgive a person for a divorce, but he can never use them in ministry. He can never have a pastor who's been divorced and never have a, uh, a deacon who's been divorced. Here's my question to that person, and I've asked it many, many times. Does God forgive sin? All those in favor of God forgiving sin say amen. Sin, however you want to label that in terms of the divorce, is sin. Did Moses sin? Moses murdered somebody. Did God forgive Moses? Murder. God forgive Moses? And then did God use Moses? So God forgave murder when Moses did it? And God, God used Moses? After he confessed it. Did, remember David? Remember what David did? David had, David, 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 David fell in love with a woman out of lust. And he loved her and loved her so much that he had her husband murdered in a battlefield. So he committed adultery, he committed murder. So God should never have made him king and God should never have kept him king. God should never, according to that, God was never going to use him again. What some people say. But he was forgiven. Go look at Psalm 51 and see how he cries his heart about what he did. And he cried, which is another wonderful life reality, and that's this. There's nothing you can do that God can't forgive you for. So you look back over your life and compare it to David from time to time and see that God is willing to forgive you for everything. The blood of Jesus Christ washes over you and me.
Don't, don't forget about God's grace and mercy, will you? Peter. Peter denied Jesus. Did God forgive him? What do you think? You can nod, you don't have to say words. Did God use Peter? And finally, Paul. Can't get a worse example of a, of a worse resume to be used of the Lord than Paul. I mean, I wouldn't have hired him if I, if I was interviewing him for pastor. Not that I believe in folks pastor, hiring pastors. I believe the Lord hires us. But uh, I don't think he would ever been used in most churches. But despite the fact that he was a terrorist, despite the fact that he burned churches down to the ground, despite the fact that he killed men, women, and children, he confessed, and God forgave him. And my question to you this morning is, did God forgive, and then did God use Paul? If you don't think he did, then you might as well put half the New Testament away. We are all recipients of God's grace and mercy. We can demonstrate that grace by showing grace on those with whom we don't agree. If we love as Christ loved, the church is a source of hope and healing to the world. That's what we are. When we work out our differences and agree to disagree agreeably, when we love each other even though we may be up to our neck in situations, if we love one another and care for one another and treat each other with kindness and gentleness, love, mercy, and grace like Jesus would, then the outcome is going to be beautiful. Closing story. Think about this for a minute, would you? As pastor, a pastor told me about his early days in ministry when he served a small country church. There was a young woman who came to his church and presented her child for dedication, the child that had been born out of wedlock. In a small rural community, a woman like that can find herself shunned. The day of the dedication, the woman stood, stood alone before the congregation holding her child in her arms. The pastor hadn't recognized the awkwardness of the situation. He came to that part in the service when the question was asked, who stands with this child to assure the commitments and promises herewith made will be carried out? <laughs> who will be there for this child in times of need and assure that this child be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? It was then the pastor realized there was no one. There was no godmother, godfather on hand to answer that question. But without hesitation, as though on cue, the entire congregation stood and with one voice said, We will. Those who think that church people are all bad should have been around on that Sunday, for then they would have had a chance to see the church at its best. They would have seen the church as a nurturing, loving, caring inclusive, forgiving, kind, and gentle community. As I pray, we are. And I pray we will continue to be. We've been like that since 1733. Why should we change now? Amen?
Father God, we thank you for your presence this morning in the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your love and your kindness and help us, Father, to remember your grace and mercy showered upon us. We don't deserve it. That's why it's grace and mercy. Instead of giving us what we deserve, you give us unconditional love. This is the God we serve, the God of the Bible, the God who's promised never to let us go despite the pits that we throw ourselves into. So thank you for being with us this morning, Lord. Thank you for allowing your Holy Spirit to speak freely. I thank you for my brothers and sisters gathered here this morning, and I pray a blessing and an anointing upon them. And then, Father, I also pray that you give us the encouragement to go out and tell others about Jesus and the place where they can come to find his love exemplified. Thank you for this teaching moment, and I pray that there were teachable hearts and minds in Jesus' name. Amen.